Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor of Fintech Futures, and joining me this week are Sharon Kamathi, my Editor of Fintech Futures. Hey! And Travis Skelly, Director at City Ventures. How you doing? Very good, thank you. We are galloping towards the tail end of the year, and who would have thought it? Uh, I apologize to those for whom the next few words will be painful. It's not long until Christmas. Uh, <laughs> this week, we're taking on the world of uh, commerce in the wake of COVID-19, a hefty topic which Travis and Sharon will chew on uh, later in the podcast. But as always, we begin with the week in numbers. We've all gone a look in through the news lately and picked out some numbers-focused stories to discuss. Uh, Travis, since you're our guest, you're up first. Uh, what news story has caught your eye lately? Yeah, so my number is 50 million euros, uh, which is the price that Afterpay, uh, the Australian buy now, pay later firm, um, paid to acquire the, the Spanish buy now, pay later firm, uh, Pagentis. Um, and I think what's interesting about this acquisition is it really highlights a Australia being kind of the epicenter of buy now pay later firms, um, and then b you know Afterpay as as the leader uh, in Australia and then also one of the leaders in the world in, in buy now pay later, um, really kind of making a, a a strong stance to compete with Klarna in Europe. Um, I think it also highlights. Um, just the broader ecosystem of, of point of sale financing and all the exciting things that are happening there. Um, you know, this week Goldman announced a partnership with uh, JetBlue, and you know, City also. I think it was last week or two weeks ago announced our partnership with Amazon and our FlexPlay solution. Um, you know, all the networks are getting into the game, so I think it's it's a sign of uh, continued activity, and and I think of a. Uh, you know, really interesting in hot space and in, in fintech. Yeah, we've touched on the growth of buy now, pay later firms in previous podcasts as well. And it will be something that we'll probably discuss in an upcoming podcast too with Klarna. So fingers crossed um, that will go go well and we'll get some answers. Uh, but yes, a recent survey conducted by The Ascent, which is a financial analysis branch of the investment advice site Motley Fool, found that over one in three respondents have already used a buy now, pay later service to make a purchase. This has only risen during the coronavirus crisis. I I mentioned in a previous podcast as well, mainly because of the unstable economic environment. And another poll by The Ascent as well also found that 46% of Americans have had to take out a personal loan to make ends meet during the pandemic. So hence the growth of these buy now, pay later firms as people are trying to find other ways to bridge their finances. Um, And I also spoke to Peter Tyler and Becky Clements at UK Finance last week uh, during a panel for Gemini. And Becky noted that the buy now pay later services were rising in popularity in the UK as well Um, and she also said that they're quite safe to use which I thought was quite surprising although both of them did mention that they do need uh, a bit more consumer protection in terms of the laws and enforcement for these services just to improve the the whole process Um, but what are your thoughts about this then Travis? Yeah I just wanted to highlight that um, you know specifically to Afterpay and, and COVID um, you know, 40% of its cust- millennial customer bases uh, are in casual employment, according to the Financial Times, which, you know, should be an interesting uh, segment to watch as that group is going to be highly impacted potentially by, by COVID. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that, you know, credit quality uh, deteriorates 
um, with those, you know, the job security for that group being, you know, not as high as, as some of the others. Um, so be, you know, curious to see how all this rolls out, um, in the, in the, in the coming years. Yeah. I, I think it's something that we've, we've covered by now pay later firms previously in the podcast and certainly be looking forward to speaking to Klarna in more detail about it. But I think the, uh, the number in that story itself, which jumps at me is the, uh, launch, um, for uh, 2021, um, which uh, it, it's interesting because that you would well you would hope uh, <laughs> sort of talking about this with, with a, a long uh, lead time, but you'd hope that coronavirus would not still be an issue by the third quarter of 2021. So it'll be interesting to see how people's buying habits may or may not have changed uh, by the tail end of, of 2021. Perhaps they will have shifted more towards buy now pay later as people. Uh, try to keep themselves away from making large scale purchases, but it's definitely um, something to keep an eye out for, especially because uh, they'll be going up against the likes of uh, Klarna in the, in the European space. I, I want to move on to, to my numbers because they're pretty big ones this week, uh, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna do just that. Five point three billion and two point eight billion. I think maybe the biggest numbers I brought to week in numbers so far oh definitely especially, especially <laughs> combined as well um and those those who know me know that i like to i like to chat about the roles that regulation can play in technology and the way that red tape can affect the buzzwords well uh here's two stories about it because those two figures 5.3 billion and 2.8 billion are the values of the visa plaid and the mastercard nets acquisitions uh, both of which were given tacit regulatory approval over the past week or so uh, Visa got the go-ahead from the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK, and uh, Mastercard was given the green light by the European Commission. Uh, now, Visa's uh, big mega deal passed muster with the CMA because it looked uh, because the CMA looked at how the deal could affect competition in uh, in the in the UK in that country. It found that Plaid would have would have had an increasingly competitive threat to Visa in the future. It said, uh, but the, right now it's only one of several payment initiation services. Uh, already active in the country. It also said that the uh, customers use enough suppliers in the the PIS market that Visa would be unable to drive competitors out uh, and take a stranglehold of it. However, Visa's competitor Mastercard didn't get away scot free with its deal with Nets. Um, it was that which was agreed last year. Uh, six countries in the EU actually raised concerns over it to the European Commission, which took it upon itself to investigate. Now, Mastercard's deal is a little bit different from Visa's as it focuses more around corporate services, clearing and instant payment services. Uh, but the EC found concerns over the fact that both Mastercard and Nets are pretty big in the account-to-account -account services business. Uh, and in order to push things through and keep the EC sweet, Nets and Mastercard had to agree to offload a license for Nets' real-time uh, payments platform to a third party. A pretty hefty offload, in fact. The third party will have, uh, yet to be decided, will have exclusive access to that platform, to offer that platform and the technology across the EU, and also gets all of the personnel and consultancy services that go along with it. Um, so a pretty big, a pretty big uh, concession to make to the EC there. But these are both two pretty big mergers that have been given the go-ahead from regulators uh, obviously, good news for shareholders, but the question is, you know, what about the market? Everyone always asks when these big um, consolidatory uh, uh, deals happen, when things get smushed together, these big companies. There's always the question of whether we're going to see an oligopoly start to appear in payments tech and whether it's a real risk in the future. 
But um, Sharon, what's your reaction to sort of the this regulatory go-aheads that have happened over the last week? Yeah, I mean, we spoke about large mergers as well during our podcast last week, and it was about the the big techs sort of coming in and the inquiry that we've seen over in the States about um, possible monopolies. However, it's interesting that in, on one side, you have these regulators and policymakers um, calling for, you know, uh, more free capital markets um, and stopping the monopolies from emerging. But at the same time, they're allowing these monopolies to form because they're not actually stopping anything that like from happening. There haven't been any mergers so far that have been stopped. So most of these just go to court, they dukes it out, and then nothing happens. So I, I find that to be an interesting phenomenon, and I wonder if it's going to continue happening. So, I mean, in the space of mergers anyway, it looks as though it's not being impacted too much during COVID. So in an upcoming feature for um, our September edition, we have Jay Wilson, who's an investment manager at Albion VC, who notes that the strategic acquirers will likely have balance sheet issues of their own. So cash funded acquisitions are out of the question and capital markets will default de facto be shot. So debt financing acquisitions are also highly unlikely, which incidentally also takes out your private equity buyers. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm looking at the current recession that we're in, um, but the stock markets don't really seem to be reflecting that because they've remained relatively stable-ish. I mean, today, Wall Street opened mostly in the green um, on the day of recording this with both the S&P 500 and NASDAQ composite on track for record highs. And even the FTSE 100 index, although it was down, it was only down by six points, which isn't too bad. So if market volatility is an indicator of M&A appetite, which it usually is, the indicator also suggests a more positive landscape. So again, it just looks like it's going well for these mergers. So you have big techs going through courts, perfectly fine, no competition worries there and no concerns um, in the markets either. But what are your thoughts, Travis? Yeah, well, we were investors in Plaid, so we were very excited to see Visa acquire them uh, for such a large number. Um, and I think on the bank aggregation, you know, space where where Plaid sits in financial data overall, you know, I think of it less as a uh, monopoly concern, right? Mastercard quickly followed with a similar acquisition of Finicity, and you're seeing others come out. Um, other tech firms come out and, and say they can provide aggregation services. Um, you're also seeing the banks come up and provide their own solution uh, through a, a group called Akoya. So I think on that kind of aggregation topic, there's less uh, regulatory concern than, than some of the others. Um, so we, we're hopeful and optimistic that that deal will get completed relatively soon. I think that yeah, it's an interesting perspective on on that, especially because it seems that everyone and their uh, the grandmother is rushing to offer some sort of account aggregation service these days. And um, I suppose it's a battle that is yet to be fought in any uh, great length yet. Until we see, so perhaps we'll start to see who the major players will emerge in that uh, sector soon. Um, well, let's uh, shift on to our, our third uh, news in numbers story, which uh, Sharon has brought with her, and it's uh, about uh, UK Challenger Bank. Yes, indeed. So my figure is 150 million um, as Atom Bank um, is planning to raise that figure in a shareholder injection, its largest equity raise to date. So according to CBI Insights, fintech funding did rebound in the second quarter of 2020, but deal activity continues to fall. And this is yet another trend that we've been highlighting during this podcast. Um, so the funding increased 17% quarter over quarter to 9.3 billion 
$2 billion in uh, the second quarter. However, monthly deal activity hit a fresh low of 127 deals in April before picking up the pace in June, which saw 141 deals. Now, fintech mega rounds, which are 100 million plus US dollars, hit a new quarterly high of 28 as the largest companies in the space raise additional funding. So we've seen challenger banks, similar to Atom Bank, raise quite a lot of funding. We have N26, who extended their 570 million series D fundraise in May. Revolut, they closed a 500 million series D funding in February. And Starling Bank as well, who raised a total of 100 million from two fundraising rounds in February and May. So it's not just challengers as well who are in this space getting up all that cash. Um, there's also been investment tech and stock trading apps as Robinhood secured 200 million in a series G round a few weeks ago. And Paytex, like TransferWise, snapped up 319 million in a secondary share sale. So these mega rounds have become more common as successful startups are generally staying private longer. Um, Although the recent spat of IPOs and IPO filings may indicate the start of a shift in this trend. And speaking of IPO filings, because there are quite a lot coming up in this space, NASDAQ has filed a proposal with US regulators to change its initial public offering rules. Um, So they want an alternative route to the public markets as opposed to an IPO, since quite a lot of people do end up suspecting that these big fundraisers are often a road to an IPO. So their proposal would see a company with the help of an investment bank set a non-binding price range in advance of their first trade on the exchange with a fixed number of shares being sold. So there's no limit on how much above the price range a company's share price could open. The stock would not open more than 20% below the range. So these are big deals, um, but just not as many as before. And a prospective new way as well of fundraising aside from an IPO might be on the horizon for NASDAQ. So there's the whole IPO angle and there's also the Challenger Bank fundraising angle too. Uh, What are your thoughts, Alex? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting you you note about the the IPO changes because Atom Bank itself is is supposedly pursuing an IPO or plans to get one underway in 2022. Uh, I I think it's um it's another one of uh, like you mentioned these injections into challenger banks that sort of indicates uh, a shoring up or you know a battening down of the hatches in, in in some ways. I mean, you'd ask anyone at these banks and they would say that's not the case and that it's just an ongoing part of their growth but obviously it would be fairly um blind blindsided to say that you know they haven't been affected by the coronavirus pandemic and atom bank um is it's an it's an interesting bank when you look at it uh from the challenger perspective because i don't think it's it's ne- it's not one of the more in your face challenger banks in the uk uh it's it claims to be the first to have been founded um, the first proper challenger bank based on mobile and online only uh, a few years ago in, in 2014. But it's never really been very um, uh, in your face with its marketing. It's not like quite like Monzo or Starling have. Uh, but it's sort of uh, ticked along. Um, I mean, well, I say ticked along. It's, lend- it's total lending grew by 76% in 2019. So it says to £2.4 billion. Pounds. Um, it's had a growth in deposits uh, of about £400 million pounds as well. So obviously it's doing well. Never quite, but then it also is one of those things where it's it, because it ticks along nice in the background. It doesn't get quite the same scrutiny from uh, the media as the other banks do uh, of its of its financials. Uh, there were rumours that it was going to be picked up by BBVA as well, um, not too long ago, but uh, those that, those seem to have disappeared. So for the time being, I think Atom Bank is just 
going going along nicely. And I know it recently signed a deal with Google Cloud, which uh, to to make it even more um, uh, its application product development even more fluid and and uh, outsourced. So, I mean, it's good news for them. Um, but uh, we'll we'll see how they cope with the ongoing uh, issues to do with COVID. Now we move on to part two of the pod. Uh, this is where we open up the discussion on a specific industry topic. Uh, we finished uh, part one by talking about COVID-19 and we're going to open up part two by talking about it as well. We're going to talk about the effect the pandemic has had and continues to have on the flow of commerce and the industry in general. Uh, obviously, we're not out of the woods yet, but there is is there some light at the end of the tunnel for firms? Uh, I, I realize I've just thrown, smashed two metaphors together into the same sentence there, but you get my drift. Um, before we dive deep into the topic, however, uh, I want to give Travis the chance to give us all a, a rundown of his role at City Ventures and, and the latest developments there, which have been getting, getting him excited. And then Sharon will jump in with the, the, the more hard-hitting stuff. So Travis, uh, please take it away. Yeah, Sharon, Alex, thank you uh, for having me. Um, you know, I think yeah, City Ventures is a is a interesting and, and uh, tremendous uh, investment platform um, that sits inside of Citibank and and really allows us to get access to the latest and greatest technology, um, founders, um, business models, and allows the bank to to make investments um, in both B two B and B two C as we focus on on both segments. Um, and, and get access to these companies that can ultimately help us, um, you know, create better products and services for our customers and ultimately help our startups and our portfolios create more enterprise value through commercializations, um, you know, greater domain expertise within the bank um, and access to all of our clients. So we've been in kind of our current form for the past 10 years, investing you know, across all uh, the, you know, funding uh, rounds of, of a startup. So seed through, you know, IPO. Um, today, our portfolio is, is roughly 60 active companies um, spread pretty evenly across B2B and B2C. Um, we also invest more in kind of sub themes that are, you know, customer facing being fintech, e-commerce and prop tech. And then more on the enterprise side being more marketing, um, Data machine learning, um, you know, enterprise and just broader uh, kind of uh, tech stack type of applications, and then a heavy focus, obviously, on security. Um, so yeah, we've uh, invested, you know, predominantly in North America, but we have investments as well in Europe, Israel, um, and Asia, and, and more recently in LATAM, um, which is kind of also reflective of where our team sits. So I sit in New York with a few other colleagues. Um, we have colleagues in London and, and Israel as well, but the majority of the team sits in two offices in California. Um, so I call it another 10 to 12 colleagues out there. Um, so yeah, that's a highlight of, of who we are and, and what we do, um, but happy to answer any questions there. Well, thanks for that. Um, so we had the head of HSBC Innovations Lab during our last podcast. And I guess now is as good a time as any to ask a similar question I posed to him. So how many startups have acquired a commercial contract with City Ventures? And how does your team evaluate what makes a successful startup to join the team or not? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we have, you know, the, the party line is we have a super majority of our, our portfolio companies that have commercialized with C or our clients. The, the exact number 
I, I'm not sure off the top of my head because we have, you know, like I said, over 60 companies. But the the um, the goal of all of our investments is to help those companies gain access and leverage the capabilities of city, whether that's direct commercialization or or kind of guiding them through regulatory challenges or international expansion. All of those things that as a global financial institution with 200,000 uh, employees, um, all of those capabilities that we have, we bring those to our portfolio uh, companies as value add investors, right? Um, so we, we definitely, um, you know, lead with that strategic capability that we have. And we think that allows us to invest in some of the best companies in the world and helps us partner with some of the best venture investors in the world. And we think we've been very successful at that. Um, an example of a, a, one of these companies that I invested in is a Houston based company named, um, High Radius, which does automated accounts receivables. Um, so cities obviously got a massive B2B payments business through our treasury trade services, um, uh, uh, franchise. And, and that business saw the opportunity to work with a company like High Radius to white label their service and provide that to our clients and embed that with our other products. And so that's what we did. City Ventures invested. We, you know, worked with the, the business to find the right solution. And then we helped, um, High Radius and City come to an agreement to white label their product and roll that out to our clients. Um, and on the back of that, you know, the company just raised, uh, at a billion dollar valuation led by Iconic, um, at the end of the year. So really kind of shows some of the power that City can provide and help our portfolio companies really transition into some, you know, really powerful and market leading companies. And now turning to our main topic of commerce amid COVID-19, how does City Ventures evaluate commerce companies? Yeah. So, you know, for us at City Ventures, we, we don't invest directly in, um, call it so, the direct to consumer brands, right? We're not trying to raise our hands as the experts that can identify the next you know, amazing shoe startup or, or next, uh, snazzy stylish suitcase company, right? Like where we're better suited, where our strengths lie, it's identifying those underlying capabilities and technologies that enable those next gen, uh, brands to really proliferate. Um, so when we look at the major players in e-commerce, you know, much of what helps them be successful is in that modern tech stack that they deploy day one and they're built on top of. You know, they don't have to come back and retrofit or recreate. They're building from today what is the most latest and greatest, you know, underlying tech. And then they have or they're leveraging all the niche software products that uh, better enable their sales, their marketing, um, their procurement, their, you know, all sorts of these unique capabilities that a, um, you know, e-commerce brand uh, would, would require. And so we think we're better suited at picking those and, and helping those, um, uh, startups, you know, uh, you know, expand into, uh, new markets and, and helping them kind of get bigger faster. Um, a great example of this, you know, where we've helped, um, you know, or where we've invested in some of these enablers for e-commerce, um, include like a Persado, uh, which is helping to optimize the language and marketing campaigns, you know, using AI to run a bunch of different campaigns and then pull out the absolute best language to send in an email or to send in a, in a um, banner ad or to autom- uh, update your, your website with you know, language that's going to resonate and, and provide the biggest lift. Uh, we've also invested in companies like UJet, which help with customer service, 
phrase, which omni, omni-channel communication, and we've invested in marketplaces to allow greater distribution. So we think we're better suited at picking some of those companies, like I said, that are helping the, the next-gen brands um, proliferate. Um, and we've been pretty successful in doing that so far. And we think going forward, the you know accelerate, acceleration of the kind of digitization of e-commerce because of COVID will you know even put greater emphasis um, or demand on some of these enabling technologies that we've invested in in e-commerce. And what do you think has or will soon face a decline? Yeah, so I, I, you know, (laughs) what's faced or will face a decline, I think, is something that's, you know, stating the obvious and has also have been happening before COVID. And I think that's really the 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 identifying that the uh, brick and mortar um, retail experience is broken. Right. I think, especially in the states with the proliferation of malls and anchor tenants with big box retailers that, you know, have not, have seen, you know, a lot of bankruptcies recently, um, and have, you know, really been challenged by the explosion of, of e-commerce. Um, and I think that's only going to continue, uh, through COVID and the acceptance of, of this e-commerce. I, I, I would, you know, um, I would point out that, you know, e-commerce is still, you know, a, a relatively s- small percentage. I think it's less than 20% of, of total uh, retail sales, um, you know, every year. However, I think that the acceptance or the demand for it is, is drastically increasing. And so going forward um, in the short term, you know, obviously, I think we're going to you know, accelerate that digitization of, of e-commerce and, and, or sorry, acceptance of it and the acceleration of retail, um, into a digital experience. Um, and I think COVID is doing that, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I guess that would be one benefit for tech stuff, tar- startups is that all of that is happening much faster because of COVID. And what does short-term commerce look like versus the permanent change it will inevitably face? Yeah, so like I said, short term, you know, digital is going to continue to accelerate, but long term, brick and mortar will have to be um, kind of recreated. And I think what it looks like, there will be a greater focus on the experience, right? So um, going to a mall or going to a retailer is going to be more about the experience of having to go in there and and have something that you're excited about getting out of the house and doing something versus making a transaction, right? So if we need to buy a, 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 I don't know, pick, pick your kitchen item, you know, we need to buy it because we're trying to cook something, right? And we want it today. Um, so we can go to the store and we can buy and we can get that transaction done with. But if we're going to learn about cooking and we're going to learn about the, you know, different things that I can have in my kitchen to create that. I think that whole experience is going to be a greater uh, emphasis in brick and mortar because you can get a lot of those exciting things on uh, a digital experience. And so as we think about the digital experience as well, we're seeing a lot of fragmentation of the, the kind of different brands, right? No longer are you going to one location to find all your goods and services. I think a lot of people are becoming more accepting of the experience around individual brands and the uniqueness that an individual brand has. If you look at like the sneaker culture, for example, you know, we used to all go to in the States, like, you know, Foot Locker and you go and you look at all the shoes and you pick out one. 
Well, now you can go and you can follow your favorite artist like Kanye and, and figure out what, you know, he's, his shoes are developed. You can follow your favorite NBA person and follow where they're, and then you can go into the, the marketplace and like a goat, for example, and buy and sell these. You can get, you, you know, unique access to limited production runs of sneakers. All of that exists because of all these new digital platforms and digital experiences that Foot Locker can never compete with in just a brick and mortar. So that's just an example of that extension of experience into the digital world to create a better brick and mortar experience, I think will be the future of what that retail experience will will require to make it successful. We have reached part three of the show, and that means it's time for the FinTech Jail. Travis is going to submit an industry buzzword, phrase, or term to Sharon and I, and we will decide whether it should be thrown away for good and the key deposited down a deep hole never to be found again. The jail isn't permanent, nor is it final, but it is very fintech-y. So, Travis, what term have you brought with you today that you think should be a banished buzzword? Yeah, mine... mine um... You know, I, I thought this was a fun game, fun experience. I spent some time thinking about it. And, and what I uh, would say is, you know, a couple of things. One, I, I can't use the, the played out phrase because it is a phrase and not a word. But, you know, I think we are all tired of we believe in the underlying blockchain technology, but not in the currency. Right. Like I've heard that just a million times. And um, so I'm, I, you asked me what the phrase to kick into the jail. That would be it. Um, that's one of my uh biggest annoyances when we talk about blockchain um then the other word that you guys uh, that i was going to use but i think uh on your last podcast was used by hsbc is ai which is a uh every favorite startup founders um valuation fairy dust right like they like to sprinkle that in there and hope that you pick up on it and believe in it and will pay more for it so i will support that one in the jail but i will come up with a new one and i'll say mine is more of a pet peeve and sadly a pet peeve, a word that i i actually use i almost said it earlier today um in this podcast but caught myself and that word is uh reimagine it drives me nuts when we're trying to reimagine X, Y, and Z. Reimagine lending. Well, did we imagine lending first and never create to building lending? And now we're reimagining the imagination. Um, so for me, it's a little bit more the semantics of the word and, and not necessarily what we're trying to accomplish when we say it. But I think reimagine is an overused fintech word that I'd like to kick into the jail. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh... I, I definitely, well, there's two things there, isn't there? We've had, uh, AI was out on parole. Uh, it, it escaped narrowly last week um, and ended up being put on parole. But now fresh allegations have emerged. So maybe, yes, what does uh, this mean? This is a whole new way of thinking. It's, it's brought to us once again. Yeah. People want to see it in there locked up. I guess, you know what? If it's, if it's going to irk everyone that much, we will just put it in there for like a year. How about that? <laughs> people just yeah. let's see what will happen if people don't use it the way they do for like a whole year and then we'll revisit this whole thing but yeah i didn't reimagine we i'm with to, you yeah i didn't imagine we were gonna have to i didn't reimagine in fact that we would have <laughs> to um stretch the court metaphor so far really with this game but here we are um <laughs> but yeah reimagine yeah i i'd never really thought about it that way but yeah you, you're right did we ever did i don't think anyone really sat down and, and dreamt about lending and imagined lending 
to, to I find to be fair, you know, I don't think many people dream about lending. I'm sorry if you do, anyone who's listening, please feel free to at me later if you do. But yeah, reimagine. I there's just there's something in that that doesn't sit right with me now that it's been explained out to me. So I, I'm on board for that. I don't know about you, Sharon. Yeah, I'm on board, um, especially within the context of things like lending. I mean, come on, to be the guy who imagined it the first time around must be painful enough. Let's not try and reimagine it. Um, There's definitely nothing new that's being done. I mean, even with these um, buy now, pay later firms, they were already there, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, they were just called something different at the time. And I think I've given this analogy in the past as well. But like, for example, my brother used to use this top man card, and that was pretty much the same as Klarna. So it's just like, well, you guys are just slapping on a new brand to something that's already been there, especially in the financial industry. So there's only so much reimagining and even imagination actually um, happening within this space. So definitely, yep, that is one going in there for life. <laughs> wow. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's I I like the subtle little dig right at the end there, Sharon. Where you just where you just tap <laughs> the entire industry does not have any imagination. <laughs> I mean that things are already there. Like there's nothing new under the sun. That's all I'm saying. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode of What the Fintech. Thanks to Sharon and Travis for joining me. Before we sign off, though, uh, who's got some socials or websites or projects they'd like to plug? Uh, i tell you what, I'll go first this time. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn by searching my name. Uh, I haven't got much else going on. Time, this is the, you know, I was on a, actually, I was on a Fintech Features webinar with, with Tori Harris this week. So check that out. It's about the, uh, uh, SMEs in the new di- in new digital uh, environment we're in right now. Um, what about you, Sharon? You got anything to plug? Um, yeah, actually, um, for the first time in a while. Uh, so I was in a webinar um, for Bright Exchange. So it's a platform that helps um, underprivileged kids get some work experience, um, get some mentors and, and guidance. And I was on a webinar, so you can check it out on their website. That's Bright Exchange. Um, and it's just spelt normally, you know, exchange because within this industry, you have to say it because there's so many things that are spelt weird. Um, but, but yeah, these are the normal spellings of things. And also you can find me at fintech kits, K I T S cannot reiterate enough that I am very much online. I'm extremely online person. I am on Twitter. So do tag me on this. I see people up on Twitter, retweeting it. It's got AD Hamilton on it, but where's fintech kits, you know? Um, so I'm there. It's at Fintech Kits. And of course, as per usual, hit me up strangers on LinkedIn. I'm all for it. It brings me joy to see what messages you have for me. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Travis, what about you? Yeah, if you're interested in learning more about what we do at City uh, Ventures and, my, and our portfolio, um, you know, look us up on our website at city.com forward slash ventures. Um, and if you're interested in, in talking with me about your you know, latest and greatest uh, fintech startup, um, you know, happy to connect on LinkedIn as well. And yeah, look forward to hearing from you. Excellent. And as for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching for Fintech Futures and looking for the two Fs, our lovely logo. 
Uh, if you like this podcast and our other episodes, then feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service, whichever you use. Uh, we'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find us by writing a review, recommending us to a friend, posting us on online, remembering to at Sharon. And thank you very much for your support. Um, we'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. <laughs>